morning, Door of Hope family. It's an honor to be with you guys this morning. Would you stand again in reverence for the scriptures? This is from Jude, um, verses 1 through 4. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to um, write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Once again, it's legitimately good to be with you. We'll just jump right in. Um, If you've read the story of Noah, I assume if you've been a Christian for much time, you've probably read the story of Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. You might remember this episode from the end of chapter 9. After the flood, uh, Noah gets drunk and lies naked in his tent. Uh, And then his son, his son Ham, sees him and does something. The language is pretty vague in the original, but he does something that brings shame to Noah. And Noah pronounces a curse on his son Ham's son, Canaan, so on his grandson, and on Canaan's descendants, the Canaanites, namely that they would become slaves. That's Noah's curse. Fast forward to the antebellum south in the United States of America. As a northern movement for the abolition of slavery began to take off, many, many people appealed to the Bible to argue against the American system of chattel slavery. Uh, But looking for biblical justification for these inhumane practices that they'd become economically dependent on, many Southerners including, tragically, many religious leaders, pastors, clergy, whatever, they turned to Genesis 9, and they noted, they noted something, that the name Ham means black or burnt. And they inferred then that Noah's curse of slavery was intended to apply to all of of Ham's descendants who they believed were the black race. Thus, it was not only permissible, they argued, for black people to become the slaves of white people, it was a command of God. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find any biblical interpreters who understood Genesis 9 this way before Muslim slave traders began looking for justification for trafficking black African slaves in the 8th century. And we all have the advantage of growing up in one of, <laughs> today, in one of the parts of the world where at present chattel slavery is viewed as the horrific evil that the Bible declares that it is. But my point is that it is very, very easy, very easy to let the culture and the attitudes and the values and the wants and even the needs of our particular time and place mutate the meaning of the Bibles that we hold in our hands. Is it even possible to escape our own enculturation and let the Bible be what it actually is on its own terms? That's a question a lot of people are asking right now, and it's a good one to ask. Two weeks ago, 
we raise the issue of the temptation to craft our own religions that are tailored to our own sensibilities. And then we spent the rest of the time arguing for Jesus, the Son of God, to be our starting place for forming our religious or theological beliefs. And then last week, Josh argued that if you trust Jesus, if you take all of that, and I don't, under, I don't believe everyone in this room, I know there's probably people here who don't believe these things about Jesus, and you're like, that sounds weird, that's wild. But if you do come to believe that Jesus wa- was dead and walked out of the tomb, and that that vindicated him as the Son of God, then, then, If you trust Jesus, you will trust the Bible that Jesus embraced, that Jesus authorized, that Jesus viewed as spirit-inspired and trustworthy and authoritative. And Josh said very clearly and and well that Jesus and his scriptures, that that is our definitive authoritative source for doing theology, for thinking after God, thinking about God. But everything else we're going to talk about is secondary to Jesus and his Bible. Of course, I hope that's obvious. But this immediately raises a crucial question. The Bible must be interpreted, right? It's one thing to say the Bible's truth. It's another to faithfully understand that truth on its own terms, as that story I just told you tragically illustrates. So even if I sincerely desire to to think God's thoughts after him, to, to submit to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their scriptures, How do I know I'm not blinded to what they say by all the particulars of my historical situatedness? Another way we could put that, how do we know that I'm not simply reading the white, 30-something, male, straight, 21st century, Western, American, Oregonian, Portlandian, middle class, bald, pseudo-intellectual, politically moderate framework, into the Bible when I read it, when I process it, when I teach it to you? That's an important question too. So again, if the previous two messages were about the primary sources for doing theology, this week and next week are kind of about secondary sources. These are about how we, thinking of Jesus in the scriptures as our starting point, how do we actually come to faithfully understand those? What are these sources that help us deal with the original sources well and faithfully in a way that honors God, in a way that's trustworthy? That's what we're doing today. We're talking about doing theology in the next layer of community. That's the name of the series, Theology Community. We're, we're, we are suggesting to you that one of the ways to avoid creating your own religion, even out of Jesus and even out of the Bible, is to do it not in isolation but in community. First with Jesus, then with the biblical authors, including the Holy Spirit himself, who carried along this diverse group of uh, first century and earlier writers, uh, if you include the Old Testament. And now a third ring of community, less authoritative than one and two, but super important, which is doing theology alongside, in community with the universal church, the community of Christians who has existed across time, across geography, and across culture. And I have to say from the get-go, this sermon uh, may go a little long. We'll see. I'll try. I'm really going to try not to let this balloon out. But um, it can seriously, no matter how long it goes, it can only be the briefest starting point. These are ideas so big and so lofty, like so wide that how far can we really get in 30 minutes or whatever? But as with all of these, I just want to start here um, and argue that if you want to be a truly faithful theologian, and again, no one escapes being a theologian, 
if you want to be a faithful one, one who is striving to pursue God as unblinded by your own cultural situatedness and cultural blinders as you can be, then you have to start taking the time to listen to our brothers and sisters from times and cultures that are different from ours. And to be humble enough to be corrected by them. Not just to hear it and say, oh, that's cute, (laughs) and condescend, but to be corrected. And that's not to say that any one culture out there is free of cultural blind spots. Wherever you go, they will have their own ways that they've been formed to misread the Bible as well. It's just part of sin. But that in coming together, all these diverse cultures, we come together and we're able to correct one another and hopefully see the bigger picture. And if we see that there are areas where the church has always and everywhere basically spoken with one voice and one set of convictions, then we pay attention to that. Amen? So, I want to talk about three, three, really two things. One and then two, another with two subsets. First is, well, let's just, let's just reread the passage that Shelley read for us. We'll put it up here. Jude 3 through 4. She read the intro and we pick up in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is Jude, the brother of Jesus. We've talked about this before. One of Jesus. I think a massive apologetic, a massive thing that gives confidence to the idea that Jesus really was who he says he was is that his siblings came to worship him as God and we're willing to die over that belief. I'll just leave that there. Like, if Jesus wasn't God, his brothers and his sisters would have known. <laughs> they would have known. Jude writes one of the New Testament letters, the brother of Jesus. And he's arguing for this thing, what he calls, what he calls the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This incredible statement we see here, I just, to, just to pick these words out, that this was a faith once. There was one time, one deposit that was given for all the God's people and times and places that was delivered. They didn't invent it. It was given to them through the scriptures, through Jesus, through the apostolic ministry, once for all delivered. But we see there that there is also possible to pervert that message, that's to twist it, to change it, to manipulate it into something else, or to deny it, to deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So where do we find this genuine faith that was, quote, once for all delivered to the saints? Well, it's really simple. All we have to do is... uh, We just have to discover the things that all Christians for all times and all places have believed. That's a joke. (laughs) Very simple task set before us. The faith once for all. Just, Just see what's Christianity everywhere at all times. But it gestures at the point that we're after, which is, what are the things that have been nearly universally recognized as the basic fundamental, or we could use the word orthodoxy, or right belief? when it comes to Christianity. 
So there's the Bible, of course. Your first answer is like, well, just read the Bible. Do what the Bible says. Well, yeah, that's what we're getting at. Like, <laughs> you then have to interpret it. How do we know we're interpreting it in line with the way Christians have thought and received these things for all time? Well, it's important to note the way that theology began to develop. You know, the New Testament is, in, through a certain lens, a theological work. But as soon as it was written and distributed out to the Christian community and passed along and, and communities of Christians were reading these texts and you know, trying to wrestle through what did these mean and what did they mean for us and how are we going to live these out and apply these in a way that's faithful to Jesus, um, there, of course, began to be error. People who came along and said, yeah, Jesus stuff, but, and I know y'all are doing it this way, but what if we did it this way? Or what if, ah, Jesus didn't really mean that. What if he said this? What if he said this other thing? In the book Common Roots, a very good book, uh, uh, scholar Robert Weber wrote that he said, there were all these heresies or, or you know, diversions that were beginning to come up. He said, what was therefore needed by the Christian to combat this perversion of Christian truth as a summary of the Christian faith? They needed an authoritative answer to the Gnostic threat, to these heretical threats. Consequently, summaries of apostolic Christianity began to merge independently of one another in various parts of the Roman Empire. So people would say, okay, there's all these errors coming in. We need to write down like, a tr like the true core teachings that we believe were what the apostles had in mind when they wrote these things and authorized these things. A lens through which we can come to the Bible. And these were called rules of faith. And Weber goes on to say that the similarity of content among these statements that came to be known as rules of faith are remarkable. They were so similar. So similar. So, you've got the early Christian church trying to follow Jesus, changes start to be introduced, and you've got early leaders still living within a generation of the apostles, people who were discipled by the people, <laughs> discipled by the apostles and discipled by the disciples of the apostles, people very, very close and early to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. They said, we need to get down in writing a basic framework for coming to these scriptures that we don't fall into these various errors. Eventually, these rules of faith that were propping, popping up to, to serve this function, they eventually got codified into the first uh, of its kind, the first creed called the Apostles' Creed. Have you heard that word before, creed? We talked about it a couple weeks ago briefly. Creed is just a transliteration of a Latin word, credo, which just means I believe. I believe. Usually these start with that phrase, I believe or we believe. And the creeds, these creeds are supposed to, again, capture basic Christian beliefs that have held true since the time of Jesus and the apostles. So the Apostles' Creed, if you've ever heard of that one, it tied up the key aspects of these earlier rules of faith and was first written in the year A.D. 140, very, very early. And then the final form, it was massaged, but the final form was established in the middle of the 5th century. The Apostles' Creed is thought to capture the basic faith of the apostles themselves. They're not claiming the apostles wrote this creed. They're saying this is what the apostles taught us. This is a summary. This is a summary of core biblical truth. And I'm going to read it for you. Some of you probably, anyone, has anyone ever read the Apostles' Creed before? Yeah, good portion. Not everybody, but a good portion. Okay, going back to A.D. 140, here's what the early, early Christians believed. They said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. 
He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic, that just means universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. You want to know what the earliest Christianity thing. This is the key summary of what it means to believe in Jesus, to be a Christian. It's right there. A document that has held throughout the church, has held basically every branch of Christianity in common since AD 140. Isn't that amazing? Well, there's another important creed you should know about. There are other creeds, but the, the two that have this unique authority is this one and the one called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was formulated over two councils in the fourth century. We're going to get through this, I promise. Convening key leaders from the church. So they said, we need to further clarify in response to error and heresy that's cropping up, to further clarify even beyond the Apostles' Creed. So they got all the key leaders from all the known church, brought them together to, to formulate this new theological statement. And it expanded on the Apostles' Creed to clarify specifically the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and thus to clarify the doctrine of the Trinity. Because you read the Apostles' Creed, and you're like, well, you know, there's ways to get to, like, totally, basically ignore the Trinity if you read that. And the, these early believers thought it's so crucial that we enshrine the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus in this, um, to preserve the faith, the apostolic faith. And so the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, basically, there are certainly people who have rejected these creeds, but it's fair to say these two creeds, I'm not going to put the text of the Nicene up. You should look it up. Maybe we'll, or maybe we'll look at it another time. They basically unify all the branches of Christianity. Like there's no like reputable branch of Christianity that denies the apostles or the Nicene Creed. And they basically mark, you ever hear the term historic orthodox Christianity? What's it mean to be orthodox? In a very narrow technical sense, it means to affirm the apostles and the Nicene Creed. You want to be an orthodox Christian, not the denomination or the big branch, but in the broadest sense, you want to have right belief about Jesus? That means to affirm with our brothers and sisters for all time, since the beginning, basically, of the church, the apostles and the Nicene Creed. To reject anything from these creeds is to reject Christianity as it has been historically understood. You can say, oh, I reject the creeds, but I consider myself a Christian. You may want to do that. You may want to say, these do not reflect the Bible. The Bible is my authority. We agree. The Bible is our authority. But if you reject the apostles in the Nicene Creed, you are standing against the witness of basically every Christian who has ever lived. <laughs> Every ecclesiastical body, every church, every set of, like, every group of organized churches that has ever said, like, we want to carry the mantle of Jesus. That is a scary thing to do, friends, to stand in that position over and against them. These creeds aren't scripture. They're not. But to reject them is to reject the unified best thinking of Jesus' disciples throughout the centuries. At Door of Hope Northeast, we affirm these creeds as true summaries of the key teaching of the Bible and stand in this great tradition with our brothers and sisters across time and history. That's part of what it means for us to protect the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's 
orthodoxy, when you're like, what does it mean to orthodox Christian? That is what it means in the historical sense of the word to affirm basically these creeds. But, but, there's a whole lot to Christianity and a whole lot that Jesus, the Bible is a lot longer than that creed, isn't it? <laughs> like, you read the Bible, that's like a paragraph. There's a lot of those paragraphs in the Bible. So we would never say that like this is all that matters about following Jesus or this is all the content of the Christian life or anything like that. So it pushes us to start talking more, more broadly. Something I want to read for you. Let's go to the next slide. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the story uh, of the start of the church. Just before this, the, apo- the apostles, the disciples, they're gathered in Jerusalem. They're kind of hiding out, waiting to see what's going to happen. After Jesus had ascended, he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Wait for that. The Holy Spirit comes, and it blows them out into the city. And Peter preaches this amazing sermon. And they're, here's, listen to what this says. This is part of the day. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, (laughs) Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And this is an amazing miracle, but it, it serves a deep and significant, like, fulcrum-turning point in the biblical narrative, the story that God is telling. That's this. He's been talking about it since, since early Genesis, and it's been reaffirmed throughout the history of Israel, but now let's just make it as clear as day. The good news is for everybody, without distinction. Literally, this group of Jews are speaking. They don't speak all these languages, these uneducated fishermen, people like Peter. But in the Spirit's power, he's allowing people from all these different cultures and languages to hear it. It's this divine symbolism to say, this message is for you all. I am creating a new family, a new kingdom made up of the people. Yes, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, it starts today. The day of Pentecost. And so, one of the truly unique things about Christianity, and it's easy to lose appreciation for this because we assume it about, about other systems when it's not necessarily the case, is that it is for all people and all times and all places and all cultures by design. It has an essential body of timeless, unchanging truth that is intended to be contextualized and enfleshed and lived out in unique ways in every culture on earth. It's a good and right thing that American Christianity looks different than Canadian Christianity, than Mexican Christianity, than Korean Christianity, than uh, Ethiopian Christianity, you name it. They are me- it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be that way. It finds its home in new cultures, and it gets expressed in those cultures. The same timeless truth about Jesus expressed and lived out in ways unique to their time and culture. So, once again, we need to listen to these voices. 
we've moved on. Uh, don't go to the next slide yet. We've moved on from the realm of like that narrow definition of orthodoxy, but now we're talking about maybe a, a broader idea of orthodoxy. What does it mean just to look at what is common amongst the people who have continued to do theology now for 2,000 years this side of the cross, who've continued to work it out in their various times and cultures? How can we learn from them? How can we use them to see what we aren't seeing in our context? And listen, Appealing to non-Western expressions of Christianity is very trendy right now. Like, I don't know how many times I've said the phrase or heard someone else utter the phrase, like, yeah, that sounds like very, very Western American Christian. You know, there's kind of this, like, skepticism at, um, at what we have. And I think that's good. It's actually a good impulse that we have that's kind of saying, like, let's reevaluate our assumptions and the way that we're carrying Jesus into our settings. But that, that idea to look to non-Western uh, expressions of Christianity is helpful to the extent that it's both sincere and nuanced. Let me unpack both of those. First, sincere. It needs to be sincere in that it must actually want to know what non-Western Christians think, not just assume that it conforms to our white Western view of things, right? You have to actually genuinely want to know what they believe, not to like just say, oh, well, there's this sect over here that believes this thing that I believe. So see, non-Western Christianity is just like me. Don't assume that it affirms to Western progressivism or Western conservatism because it usually does not <laughs> sync up one for one to perhaps risk overgeneralizing the conservative error here, what conservatives often do when we think about this question of how do we do theology with our brothers and sisters across culture? What conservatives typically do in their worst moments is assume that other Christian traditions are inferior or irrelevant because they're different from our tribe. Say, well, why do I need to learn from a Korean Christian? What do they have to teach me? I've got, have you seen how many books I have? <laughs> Why would I need to listen? The progressive error, again, to overgeneralize, is to assume that other Christian traditions are superior because they're exactly like their tribe. Progressive Christianity would say, like, yeah, well, if you really, if you, you know, all these people who don't think like us have got it wrong because if you go and look, like, actually, what, worldwide Christianity is just like us when it's not. It's not. It's to overstate where the conservatives would understate or ignore. So it has to be sincere. We can't come to this task of trying to enter into dialogue with Christians from across the world and across time with a chip on our shoulder, presuppositions about what they must believe, really just to use them as a tool to scaffold or to bolster what we want to be true. It's not sincere. Second, we already said this, but I just wanna say it here. It has to be nuanced in that it must acknowledge that Eastern cultures, again, have their own assumptions that can cloud their understanding of scripture just like Western ones do. Again, there is no culture out there doing theology. There's no church or group of Christians who have just like mastered the art of the Bible and of like totally clearing away the, the way they were raised and their family of origin and their enculturation and all these things. They just don't exist. It'd be awesome if they did. Let's hire one of those people to come be the pastor here. <laughs> Seriously, 
But it, it, it doesn't exist. So, so in doing this, we're not trying to say, like, just by virtue of not being American, someone is absolutely right in all that they believe. We have to be nuanced. The goal is not to find the one infallible culture that has the monopoly on correct biblical interpretation of theology. The goal is for us all to bring our learnings to the table and to let them all mutually sharpen one another on our journey towards the truths of Jesus. Amen? That's what we're after. Nonetheless, it's really interesting to read a little bit about the shape of global Christianity as it's, as it's emerging right now. And I actually, I, I think I read too many books in the last, it's probably why the sermon's gonna be too long, um, over the last probably four months. I, I was, you know, this is something that's been on my heart for a while and I've been wanting to really take this as an opportunity to dig into, again, what is the church like outside of our context? Um, there's a couple, a couple books that have been written in the last decade that are really cool, really helpful for kind of getting a big picture. Um, one of them uh, is by historian Mark Knoll. He writes in this book, The New Shape of World Christianity, these observations. I'm just going to read this. Just listen to this. Close your eyes if you need to like really focus in and zero in. But he's describing these amazing facts about world Christianity. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this. Here we go. This is a long quote. Noel writes, this past Sunday, it is possible that more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. Yet in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in all of China. Only in 1971 did the communist regime allow for one Protestant and one Roman Catholic church to hold public worship services. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, that's each, each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. And the number of Anglicans in church in Nigeria was several times the number in those other African countries. This past Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland. More were in congregations of the Uniting Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa than in the United States. <clears throat> than in the United States. This past Sunday, there were more members of Brazil's Pentecostal Assemblies of God at church than the combined total in the two largest Pentecostal denominations in the US, the Assemblies of God and the Assemblies of God in Christ. This past Sunday, the churches with the largest attendance in England and France had mostly black congregations. About half of the churchgoers in London were African or Afro, uh, African Caribbean. Today, the largest Christian congregation in Europe is in Kiev. This was written several years ago. And it is pastored by a Nigerian of Pentecostal background. This past Sunday, there were more Roman Catholics at worship in the Philippines than in any single country in Europe, including historically Catholic Italy, Spain, or Poland. This past week in Great Britain, at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing the locals. Most of these missionaries are from Africa and Asia. In a word, the Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than in any comparable period in its history, and with the exception of the very earliest years of church history. That's amazing. That is amazing. So all this talk about Jesus and the Bible and even the creeds, 
Let, don't let that become abstract. Think about it. We are sharing a faith with the world. We are a minority of Christians in the world. So I'm not even going to get into today, like, what are, what are the characteristic beliefs of the average Christian in the global south today? We don't, we don't really have time. My point is just to, to whet your appetite for like, what do they believe? How are these Christians who are not growing up in contexts like us working out their faith? In what ways is it similar? In what ways is it different? How can we learn from them? May we stop with this paternalistic stuff about being like the, I don't know, the hub, the mecca of Christianity here in the U.S. We are not, objectively. And sooner or later, there are going to be African and Asian missionaries moving into Portland to make disciples. (laughs) And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. May we help them. (laughs) As those who live here, who are indigenous, may we be on the same mission with them. That's the globe. That almost feels like in timesy to me, like you've got the early church, the amount of expression, now we're we're in this time, in the next 50 years, like the shape of Christianity. When you think of the average Christian, you will not think of a white person. You will think of someone in Latin America, in South Asia, in South Africa. That will be the average Christian. And the gospel will be robustly more diverse than it has been in this last, this last couple of centuries. That's amazing. It's amazing. Okay. Gospel's going out widely. Last thing. So we got to think of it in terms of that geographic spread, but that's, that's just thinking about today, Christianity expressing itself and finding its footing across our planet today. You've also got to add the historical dimension to it too. Christianity has been, uh, it's got a very interesting story. Birthed in Israel, obviously. Got the whole history of Israel, then leading up to Jesus, the Messiah, died, raised. His followers began to, to see him as God because he raised from the dead, ascended to the Father. They started this brand new movement, was birthed in Jerusalem. Right there, that day, that's the day of the church, Acts 2, the day the church started. Spirit rushes disciples out. Everyone's hearing, hearing the gospel in their own language. It's amazing. And the story of Christianity really begins to be taken to the ends of the earth, a story that's still underway. And it spread. It spread throughout the Roman Empire. It used the, the amazing resources of Roman roads and all this crazy stuff, the technology that Rome had built inadvertently got used, maybe in God's sovereignty, I think so, in God's sovereignty for that time in history for the message of the gospel to start and be able to use that massive infrastructure of the Roman Empire to take the good news out and out and out into Asia and into Africa first. When you think of the early church leaders, these ones assembling these councils, you need to think, like so many of the key people we think of, people like Augustine, these were African bishops. For some reason, we whitewash that in our minds, don't we? These African bishops were among the key early fathers. And there was relative unity amongst the church, especially during these times where the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed came to be formulated. But then there was the split between uh, the church in Rome and the church in the East. And that began the split between these two major branches of Christianity that became from one, the early Christian church into, next slide, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. So suddenly where there was only one for all of history, now there's two. And you, 
and subgroups of the Eastern Orthodox Church there. After spreading into places like Syria and Egypt and India, then the gospel made its way into Europe and later to the Americas. Philip Jenkins, uh, he wrote, by the time the first Anglo-Saxons were converted, Ethiopian Christianity was already in its 10th generation. Did you know that? But eventually, there was another split. The Protestant Reformation, uh, whose, uh, the lineage of which we are firmly a, a, a part of. You probably know the story of Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, but it was intended to be a reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. Did you know that? Martin Luther did not want to separate. He wanted to reform the institution. He wanted to reintroduce important, important doctrines that he believed went back to the early church that had become corrupted and lost and missed over time. But it didn't play out that way, did it? <laughs> and as a result, there was another schism. And now we have three main branches of world Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, and Protestants, and a lot, a lot of subgroups amongst Protestants, including us, fit in that non-denominational Protestant category. My point here is this. Christians have been working out their faith for 2,000 years. And now in three different kind of primary hubs of kind of Christian thinking that are different in really important ways, but unified in really important ways that we've already talked about. So again, my point, I'm not gonna get into what separates Eastern Orthodox from Roman Catholic from Protestant. That's a really good question to ask. You would benefit from looking into those answers. Uh, let's get some coffee and talk about that one time if you're interested. But that's not the point for today. The point is just to acknowledge it and to say, use this moment to say, we have a lot of work to do if we wanna be truly responsible doing theology in community with people who have been thinking about these things for a long, long time, working it out in their contexts. So, pragmatically, what do, we, what do we do with all this? How do we actually take a step towards doing theology with our brothers and sisters across history and across geography, doing theology with the universal church that Jesus is building? We're going to talk more about it next week. We'll get a little bit more pragmatic. Next week will certainly be the most pragmatic of all the, of all the messages in this series. But first of all, I want to start by, just by acknowledging that our stream of Christianity is not all of Christianity. You see that, right? <laughs> like, let's just acknowledge it. Now, that does not mean the differences between, say, Protestants and Catholics are not important. There's a reason I'm a Protestant and not a Catholic. Plenty of Catholics disagree with me, of course, and Orthodox for that matter. I'm not saying these differences are unimportant. I'm not saying even that those splits weren't justified. I think they were. Tragically, they had to happen. So this is not to reduce everything. It's like, oh, can't we all just look, overlook these things? Like key things about the doctrine of how people are justified by God were at stake with the Protestant Reformation. And I think Martin Luther got that one right. And it's a really, really, really important thing to get right. But that does not mean that Christians who are not Protestants are not Christians. You understand that, right? 
we have brothers and sisters. Every church, every one of those branches is made up of people who are nominal. Yeah, yeah, I've affirmed, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Catholic because I grew up Catholic. Yeah, I'm Baptist because I grew up Baptist. People who just kind of hanging around who do not know the Lord, who do not believe the truth about him. That's, we can say that of every church that's ever existed. There are people who are not part of the universal church, who have not given their faith to Jesus, who have not trusted in him. But we would be foolish to say that there aren't sincere believers in every one of these traditions. Foolish. So start there. Just be aware of that. Be aware of that. Christianity is a lot wider than any one local church. This admonition doesn't just apply to non denominational Protestants, everyone needs to hear this message. Christianity is wider than us. Second, pragmatically, start here. Try to read more widely. I mean, do you... I, listen, we've, we've made this distinction before. Not everyone in this room is called to be an academic theologian, right? I mean, I'm certainly not one. And there's this gradation. Some of you are, like, filled up, like, part of your intimate connection with Jesus is like reading theology and exercising your intellect to worship him. Not everyone. And that's okay. That's actually like part of the way different people are gifted and made. Like we are not all, we don't all pursue Jesus in the same way. So there's a scale here. But if this is pricking your heart a little bit, there are great books to start reading like, what is about church history? Why did these divisions happen? What is church in the global south like right now in the year 2022? There are ways to start just reading more broadly. I just say pragmatically, this is something that I've worked into my uh, kind of preaching preparation process. Every time I preach, and this is just a, this is like so minimal in trying to do what we're trying to do here, but every time I preach, I commit to consult to a minimum of at least ancient commentators, black commentators, female commentators, and specifically from Africa, the, the continent of Africa, African commentators. That's just one way I go, that's only a little bit, that's just, that's just a sampling, but that's one way every single time I step into that pulpit, I've interacted. And I might disagree with what I read in that commentary, or I might go, there was no way I was gonna get that insight. That's the truth, and I was blind to it because of who I am and where I grew up, and the privileges that I hold. So little things like that, over time, over time, soften us and sharpen us. Another thing I would say pragmatically is this. Form friendships outside your church. Everything isn't just about the books you read or whatever, of course. Are you friends with any Catholics? Friends with any Orthodox? Have you visited a service? Friends with any Presbyterians? Have you, are you aware at all of what an Anglican worship service is like? Do you have friends? You can talk and say, hey, tell me about this. What's this? Why do they do, do this differently? That's just, speaking denominationally, apply that, of course, to cultural backgrounds, national identities, all that stuff. Start forming friendships outside of our church. Become a good listener and a good learner. In conclusion, in conclusion, listen to the words of Jesus. John 17, high priestly prayer. Verse 20, he says, I do not, he's, this is Jesus praying for the church, praying to the Father for the church. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's not just praying for the disciples amongst him, 
but for those who are going to be downstream, the disciples of the disciples of the disciples. He's praying for you and me. What's his prayer? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays that his church, generations removed from him, would be unified, that the world would believe that our unity as Christians has something to do with the believability of the gospel. So I, I reaffirm again, we are not Door of Hope Northeast, Door of Hope, Portland churches, American churches, Western churches. We are not at the center of what God is doing in the world because no one place is. He's building his kingdom everywhere and we should rightly think of ourselves as one unique signpost to it here in Portland in the early 21st century that stands shoulder to shoulder with all of those people who embrace the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen? When our differences are over secondary matters, may we celebrate alongside and learn from and share with our brothers and sisters who are striving to be faithful to Jesus in their times and in their locations and in their cultures and in their languages and on and on and on. And make no mistake, people depart from the genuine faith all the time. They do it all the time. That's not to say someone can't leave Christianity even if they want to still call themselves a Christian. But when the differences are not over what makes someone a Christian or not, when they're not over the essentials of the faith, man, may we have the humility to learn where we can, disagree where we can, make our contribution where we can, but pursue unity. Whatever that means. Probably won't mean we're part of the same local church. That's okay. That is okay. But whatever unity means in that arrangement, may we pursue it. One day, it will be a deeper reality that, than we can ever imagine when we're united with Jesus among a great, this is from Revelation, among a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're going to see that day, friends. May we be humbly working toward it now. Amen? Let's pray.